you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. If you're sitting on the outside aisle, if you grab the basket that's underneath your chair and pass it down, if you're a guest with us, we'd love for you to take out one of those cards and fill it out. There's a welcome room in the right as you're leaving. Somebody will be in there after the service. If you wouldn't mind stopping in and handing them that card, it will give us a chance to tell you thank you for being with us uh, this morning. Last week we were talking about this idea of wine and wineskins. Very, I think it's it's important, period. I think it's very important for us uh, where we live to kind of get this right. Uh, we talked about the wine. That's what Jesus invites us into. He gives us a new identity, sons and daughters, new activity. He invites us to participate with him in the redemption of all things. And then we said the wineskin is our lifestyle. We all have one. And the expectation from God is that we will... Uh, shift and change our lifestyle to accommodate what he's calling us uh, to do and who he's calling us to be. So we start with what he's giving to us, and then we make the necessary adjustments uh, as those things are appropriate. And uh, this week, as I was thinking about that and how important that is, I thought it might be wonderful, uh, at least for half of you, uh, to hear from a woman uh, and to hear what she has to say about this whole idea of wine and wineskins. Uh, there's probably some differences on men and women and how we see this. And so I've asked Penny Harrison, our children's pastor, to come and share her perspective on this. I didn't coach her at all. This is stuff that's coming out of her heart. Uh, but I asked her to speak as a mom, as a working mom, and just kind of speak to this whole idea of what is a wine, what does wineskin really look like uh, for her. So, Penny, if you'll come. David just um, mentioned to me uh, this last week, and I thought about it. I was actually out of town this weekend, and I was thinking about that and um, and, and felt like I did have um, something to share. I'll, I'll, I'll share this first. I don't know if, if everybody knows me and, and that I do have two children. Um, my sons are twenty, about to be 21 and about to be 18. I have a uh, junior in college and a senior in high school. Um, on top of that, I've, I've been a single mom for um, almost seven years now. So that adds a layer of, of what it means to be a mom um, to two growing boys. Um, and my calling, I felt like I really knew my calling early on. Um, I don't know that I would have called it my deal or whatever, but I knew what God had put in my heart. And what God had put in my heart from as far back as as I can really remember, especially coming out of college and, and starting my professional career as a teacher, was that I was to um, show people who Jesus was through the Word of God and how the Word of God applied to their life. And not long after I started teaching, I had my first son, and, and so I had some decisions to make. I was still working outside the home, and I had this son, but I still knew this was my calling, but I was in public school. And so what I had to make a, a conscious decision to do, and I've had to do throughout um, my life, and I do over and over, is make a conscious decision to say, this is what you've called me to. And whatever role I'm in in my life, that calling is still my calling. And God, you're going to show me a way to live out this passion, this calling you put on my in my heart, on my life, this calling that you have given specifically to me. You're going to show me how to do that in the role that I'm in at that particular time. I didn't mold my life around being a teacher. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't mold my life around being a mom. Being a teacher, being a classroom teacher in a public school, in a school that was very um, 
poor and and kids that had all kinds of issues, that was a role that I had. And being a mom was a role that I had. But God still said, this is the calling. And I'm going to show you how to live out this calling in the role that you have. And then my roles changed. Your kids get older, and, and I was called into ministry. And so for some of you, you may go, well, it's easy for you to live out that calling. You have that. You're, you were in children's ministry. We've been, I've been doing children's ministry for 15 years. And I was called to Stonebridge. At one time when I first was called to Stonebridge, I was also called back to the classroom. And, again, I had these roles. I, had, I was a role as a teacher, a full-time teacher, a part-time pastor, and, at that, and that's when as a single mom. But the calling God had put on my life had never changed. The roles in which, I, in which God showed me, this, yes, this is your role now, but that calling doesn't change. So you can't, you can't wrap your life around the teaching. You can't wrap your life around just raising your kids. You can't wrap your life around being a pastor at Stonebridge Church. Because really, that would be short-sighted. Because one day, I'm not going to be the children's pastor at Stonebridge Church. I hope that doesn't happen anytime soon. But there will be a day that I'm not. There will be a day this fall when I am a mom with no kids at home. And if my life had been not wrapped around what God had called me to, then what would happen in August when I have no kids at home? What would happen when God one day says, it's time for you to come out of Stonebridge? I would be dead. God gives us a calling. He gives us that wine. And then he shows us how to wrap our life around that. And here's the thing that I can say from experience of raising two boys and working full-time, and at part of that time working two jobs, is that God, if we say to God, yes, that is the calling you have on me, show me, I want to live that calling out. He's going to show us how we can still take care of all those roles that we have, especially, I'm speaking to women, And still, that's our calling. He'll show us. And we can trust him to show us how to live out our calling in the midst of what role we're in at that time. So I would encourage you, especially, again, as women, as moms, as wives, to ask the Lord, what is, what, do you, what have you put in my heart? What is the calling you have specifically for me? Because here's the thing. I believe this with everything that's in me. I believe that the calling that God put on my life, the moment I said yes to him, will be the same calling he, that I am living out on my deathbed. That I'm laying in a bed somewhere and I am still telling someone who Jesus is. And it won't matter that I'm, however old, and my kids are grown, and whatever else has happened, the calling's the same. I mold my life around that, and God shows me how to live it out in the stages of life. All right. All right. Let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, we do thank you.
so much that as you created every single one of us, before the foundations of the earth, you had a purpose and a plan for us. Not just that we would be teachers or accountants or pastors or moms or dads and husbands and wives, but you had a purpose and a plan in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us that you speak clearly into us. Lord, show us what you have for us, what you have put in us, what you have uniquely qualified us to do for your kingdom. Lord, remind us to trust you that in every stage we're in, whatever role we're in, whether we're going to a job every day, whether we are at home with babies every day, whether we are um, looking for whatever it is, Lord, that you have a way for us to live out of that purpose and plan that you have for us. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that they will trust you to show them how to live that out. In your son's name, amen. past couple of weeks, we've seen this increasing level of um, controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders. We'll see more of that today. It really comes to a head, kind of bubbles over a little bit. Religious leaders decide uh, Jesus is not one of them, and they set on this course of doing something about that. Kind of in light of that, I also want to talk some about this, continue to look at this wineskin idea and give you an element of your life that for many of us is difficult to incorporate this regardless of your calling or your season of life or your role, different roles that you play, like Penny was talking about. There's something that God wants for all of us, but it is difficult, I think, particularly where we live to incorporate. So we're going to start reading chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus said... Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what you have here is Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? The Sabbath was the last day of the week. It was Saturday for the Jewish people. It was very, very, very important for them to honor it. It was a key part of who they were as a people. The fourth commandment, this is Exodus 20, says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your servants, your livestock, nobody works. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And he made it holy. The the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was actually death. That's how seriously uh, the Jews took the Sabbath day. I don't know if anybody, I don't know how regular that was. There is an instance in Roman, I mean, excuse me, in Numbers uh, 15, I think it is, where someone is stoned to death because they gathered wood on the Sabbath day. They bring this guy to Moses and say, what do we do with him? And Moses prays and God says, y'all take him out back and stone him. And that's what they did. It's how seriously the Jews took honoring the Sabbath. Now, they went through a period where they did not do that. They were put in 
time out basically for 70 years for multiple reasons. One of them was not honoring the Sabbath. They come back and they're committed. We want to figure this thing out. So the 500 years before Jesus is born, there's a lot of discussion and debate among the religious leaders. What does it mean to not work? If we want to honor the Sabbath, we want to remember it, we want to keep it holy, God says don't work, then we need to define work. If we can figure out what work is, then we'll know what not to do. We'll know how to honor the Sabbath because we'll know the things that we should avoid. They came up with this list of 39 forbidden activities. And under each one of those, you can kind of see those things as umbrellas, and under each one of those umbrellas there's lots of other stuff. I read somewhere that there's actually a couple of hundred specific activities that are forbidden. Maybe even more than that, this guy was just kind of estimating. Large number of rules that were created, all with the best of intentions. It was a religious leader saying, if the key is to not work, then let's define as tightly as we can what work is. That way we can avoid doing it. That way it's the best way for us to obey and honor God. And then Jesus steps into the midst, and his disciples, they see breaking the Sabbath. Those things that are in blue is what the disciples did. We just read that. You didn't know that was work, but it was. They broke three rules. They reaped when they pulled grain off of the stalk. They threshed when they rubbed it in their hand to separate the um, wheat from the, the chaff. And then they blew the chaff away probably when they put it in their mouth. That's winnowing. They, they broke three things. For sure two, probably three rules. And the, the Pharisees see that and they say to Jesus, you're not controlling your folks here. These are your disciples. You're responsible for their behavior. How is this okay with you? You know keeping the Sabbath is a big deal. We got in a lot of trouble as a people when we did not honor it. So why are you allowing your guys to do this? And Jesus responds first with a comparison. Hey, do you all remember 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, when David broke, the, broke a rule? He didn't break the Sabbath, but he broke a rule. He, was, he had just found out King Saul was going to kill him, and so he's leaving pretty quick out of Jerusalem. He stops by, not Jerusalem, he's leaving pretty quick, and then he stops by the tabernacle. He asks the priest for some food because he's on the run, and the priest says, all I've got is this holy bread. These 12 loaves of bread, but nobody can eat them except for the priest. And David says, I'll take them, even though he's not a priest. And he eats them. And he doesn't get struck by lightning. He doesn't get leprosy. God doesn't smite him in any way. There's nothing in that story, there's nothing throughout the Old Testament that shows that God was at all displeased with what David did. And so Jesus is saying, see, sometimes it's okay. Human need can trump legal observance. It's okay. Y'all... Pharisees have lost the heart of the Sabbath. Originally, good intentions. I want, to, I want to make sure we know what work is so we can avoid it. It's not where we are anymore. There's so many rules. There's so many guidelines. Nobody can honor this. You're getting on to my guys for eating. That's all they, they ate. That's all they did. If the Sabbath is for rest and restoration, how can it be work for somebody to eat? And then he goes further and says, and by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the boss of this whole day. Y'all spent 500 years trying to figure out what you can and can't do. I'm going to tell you what you can and can't do. I get to make those decisions. I get to make those rules. We've seen him use that phrase, son of man, before. He used it when he healed the paralytic. And he says to this paralytic, your, sons are for, your sins are forgiven. And they say, the Pharisees say, you can't do that. You can't forgive somebody's sins. And he says the son of man has authority to do that. He's referencing Daniel 7, this, 
this messianic prophecy about the Son of Man who would be given authority by the Father to do certain things. Authority to forgive sins, Jesus takes. And now we see Jesus saying, and I've also got authority to interpret God's will. I can tell you how to honor the Sabbath. Again, y'all, y'all spent a lot of time and put a lot of energy, maybe at the beginning with the best of intentions, into doing this. But I'm going to cut through all of that. I'm the boss of this day. And then Luke puts another story right on the back of it to demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord of a Sabbath. On another Sabbath, so at some time in the future, Jesus enters the synagogue. He was teaching. A man was there with a right hand, uh, whose right hand was withered. Scribes and Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them, he said to, after looking around at all the disciples, he says to this man, stretch out your hand. The man did so and was healed. The Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we have Luke saying he claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And here's the proof. Some point in the future, he's teaching in the synagogue. Again, at this point, the Pharisees have decided you're not one of us. They're looking to accuse him, to discredit him. At a minimum, they want people to stop following him, to see that he's no longer a man of God. I think they're actually, it says, they're trying to get him in jail. They're trying to find something they can accuse him of so they can get him out in jail, get him out of circulation so people will stop following him. Jesus knows that, and he steps right into the middle of it. Pulls a guy up, synagogues are kind of people around the sides, and I think he puts the guy right in the middle with his withered hand. He's got this atrophied hand. The Pharisees had an exception. It was okay to heal on the Sabbath if it was a matter of life and death. This was not a matter of life and death. Tragic for sure, but he could have come back the next day. And then Jesus asks a question. This is what y'all are getting hung up on. What's lawful to do? What's legal? What's right? How do you honor the Sabbath? Is it okay to do good? Is it okay to save life? He's asking them this question. They don't respond. I think it's in Mark's gospel. It says he looks around and he gets angry at them. And then he says to this guy, stretch out your hand. And when that guy's hand is healed, it's kind of the divine stamp on what Jesus is doing. He's saying, see, I'm the, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I, I decide. I told you that. And now I've demonstrated it. God working through me, me to heal this guy's hand on the day, on the Sabbath. Something that y'all consider work something that you consider a sin, something that you consider not honoring to the Father, well, it just happened here. And so what are you going to say about that? And what they say, they take their ball and go home, and they try to kill him. That's what it says in Mark. From that moment on, they plotted to figure out how to kill Jesus. They realized he's, he's not on our team at all. And so, again, it's that wine and wineskins idea. Rather than adjusting their wineskin, their understanding of what it meant, what it means to relate to God. They said, we're not going to do that. We're going to stick with what we know, and we're going to try to get rid of him because he doesn't fit in with our understanding of how God works. So what does that mean for us? We live on this side of the resurrection. We are no longer, I don't think any of you feel bound by any type of Sabbath observances. You looked at those 39 things, and we're thinking, I've done... 12 of those this morning. You're not, and you don't feel guilty about it. And you shouldn't. 
We're not, we don't live under the law. We're not bound by Sabbath observance. So what does this mean for us, for Jesus to be the Lord of the Sabbath? He says, I think it's in Matthew's version of this story. He says that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. I like that idea. The Sabbath was made for us. It was made for men and women. And it was made for us because we need it. And that is true. We don't have to follow this long list of guidelines for what it means to rest. But as men and women, we have to rest. The Sabbath is not rooted in the Old Testament law. It's actually rooted in creation. God's original intention, his original design for us as men and women, there's a rhythm. We've talked about this before. Rest, work, and relationship. All three of those elements need to be active in your life. I say rhythm because to me balance implies um, things are equal and they're not. God worked for six days and he rested for one. So don't think in terms of how many hours a day am I giving to each of these elements. Think about your week. I would say that's probably the shortest span that it's healthy to look at. Look at a week. Do I have elements of rest and work and relationship? Look at a month. Are those elements there? If they are, then you're living according to God's created design for you. If they're not, you're going to crash and burn. This is Genesis 1 and 2, pre-fall. It's what he designed for everyone. When he had a blank slate and he could have done anything, he said, this is how I want people to live. So let's look real quick. We're going to do work and relationship really fast, uh, just because that's not what we're talking about today. Work, that's what... Penny was just talking about. That's your calling. It's your purpose. God says to Adam and Eve, as soon as he's made them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to subdue it. I want you to rule and reign. That's, you're going to serve as my representatives on this dirt. And we're still that to him. We are his representatives on the earth. And your work is how you cooperate with him in that. God puts Adam in a garden and says, work this land. And he says the same thing to each one of us. Work this. Here's how you cooperate with me. And that's that's calling, and we all have that. Relationships, that's not an issue of whether you're married or single. It's an issue of whether you're isolated or living in community. He says to Adam, who's living in paradise, perfection, it's not good for him to be alone again. Everything God made was good. But it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he creates Eve for Adam. Again, don't hear that as a marriage thing. Hear that as a relationship thing. And so for us, we want to have relationships that are transparent. Do people know what's going on in my life? Vulnerable. Do I allow people to speak into what's going on in my life? And intentional. Am I pursuing those relationships with people who love God and love me? doesn't have to be 20. It can be four or five. But if you can't start naming names, those are naming names. Can you name names of people who you would say, yes, those are people, according to the Bible, naked and without shame. Who are those folks for you? We all are created for that level of relationship. Last week we talked about very difficult period, but particularly here in our area to cultivate that level of relationship. Relationships in our community tend to be superficial and they tend to be competitive. There also tends to be a what can you do for me before I look to engage with you, kind of transactional, 
None of that is what God created us for. It's going to be work for us to develop these relationships, but you were made for that. And then rest. This is actually where we start, but we'll end it today because it's where I want to spend the most time. So rest is not sleeping. That may be a part of it, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is intentional time where you're not productive. It's a time of restoration, which has to be, somehow there has to be a connection with God in that. Psalm 23.3 says, God's the one who restores our soul. So for us to be restored, we have to be in his presence. And there's also this, this piece that says, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to be productive. I'm, I'm going to try to talk about this in a way that I don't give you specifics, which is not super helpful. But the reason I don't want to give you specifics is I don't want to fall into the trap of the Pharisees. Jesus says about them, y'all tie heavy loads on people's backs and you don't lift a finger to help them. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to give you seven steps to resting because what that will feel like to you is a burden. That will feel like me beginning with the best of intentions. That's going to feel like me piling on and telling you here are the things that you have to do. Here's the cookie cutter way that rest looks. Whether you're single or married, whether you have children or not, no matter what your job is, no matter what hours you work, here's the cookie cutter. It doesn't work that way. And so I'm going to try to speak generally but strongly about the idea of you figuring out before the Lord, asking God, what does it look like to develop a rhythm of rest? In contrast to that idea of the Pharisees, I'm going to pile stuff on you. We see Jesus saying, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's what I want you to grab onto. I want you to exchange this list of rules for this invitation to relationship. So let's get rid of the rules and let's enter the relationship. God, what does it look like for me to incorporate rest into my life? This runs against our culture as well. When we rest, we have a word for that. It's called laziness. That's how what we feel like. Some of you feel like if you're resting, it's poor stewardship. You haven't done enough to rest. You haven't, gotten, you haven't checked everything off your list, so you can't rest. Those types of things fight against. We live in a 24-7 society. We all can get every, anybody can get us at any moment. Email, text, phone call, whatever. Very difficult for us to figure out what had to, to actually incorporate rest into our life. A couple of things I want to say about this uh, as we wrap up. It's interesting to me, for the Jews, and this was because God set it up this way, but I think it's an Old Covenant, New Covenant thing. Uh, Sabbath was Saturday. It was the last day of the week. So I'm picturing in my mind these guys coming to the temple or the synagogue, and they're tired. They're all far, most of them are farmers. They have to actually produce the food that they eat been doing that for six days, and on the seventh day, they're wiped out. So they're coming to the synagogue to be restored, and they're kind of dragging in there. We see in the New Testament, our day of worship moves from Saturday to Sunday. It goes from being the last day of the week to the first day of the week. I think there's something there. It ties back into Genesis. Six days, God creates everything. On the seventh day, he rests. So Adam and Eve are made on the sixth day. So their first real day, when they wake up for the first time, it's... It's the seventh day. And what do they do on their first day? Nothing. That's what they do. Their first day 
is a day of rest. We think about resting from work. I rest because I'm tired. I think the creation rhythm is to work from rest. So rather than seeing, I come before the Lord when I'm wiped out and I'm done, I've got nothing left. Okay, what about better? Sunday's the first day of the week, not the last day of the weekend. And so before you, I'm going to get my marching orders for the week. I'm going to ask you to equip me for the week. I'm going to ask you to speak to me about these different things that I'm doing for the week. I'm going to go into the week from your presence versus running out of kind of coming into your presence out of my week, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's subtle or not, but it seems significant to me that the first the first day of Adam and Eve's life was the day that they did nothing. And I think that's what God has for us. Rest first and then work from a place of rest. Rest is an expression of trust, 100%. When you're resting, by definition, you're not being productive. Things are not getting done. Are, are you okay with that? Can you trust the Lord to be at work when you're not? I don't get this. Sabbath year. So every seven years, the Jews weren't supposed to plant anything. That's like in Leviticus 25. Most people get stuck at Leviticus 3, so they never even get to this point. You might not even know that this was out there. Every seven years, you rest. Don't plant anything. That's how they live. They eat what they grow. So on the sixth year, I bring in my crop. And that crop's got to last me year six. It's got to last me year seven. And it's got to last me until I harvest on year eight. Faith. How about that? To trust him to take care of you when you're not doing anything for that year. He says the land needs to rest. Give it a break. I don't know what that looks like for us. None of us can take a year off of work. I don't know what the parallel is for us. But there's something about rest being an expression of trust. Resting when you haven't gotten everything done. Recognizing, God, you're going to have to take care of this stuff for me. Because I'm going to incorporate this rhythm into my life. And the last thing I would say, particularly where we live, is you're going to have to fight for rest. We don't live in a society that values rest at all. When you're resting, you're no good to me. And I don't like it when you're no good to me. When you're resting, you're not doing anything for me. When you're resting, you might not even be returning my phone calls. And that makes me angry. It doesn't. Never return my phone calls. It's fine with me. I'm joking, but not really. Here's what I would say. For you, there's pressure to always be producing. You have to justify rest. It's not biblical. Rest first. Work from a place that y'all heard of this guy, Eric Little. Y'all heard of him? Chariots of fire. So here's this guy named Eric Little. He was an Olympian in 1924 in Paris. He's Scottish. Actually went on to become a missionary in China after his time in the Olympics. He was favored to win the 100 meter dash. Gold medal. First one ever for his nation in that race. Fall of 1923, the schedule for the Olympics comes out. The heats for the 100 meter dash are on Sunday. And Little says, I'm not doing it. It's the Lord's Day. It's for rest and it's for worship. It's not for running. I'm not going to do it. 
in his nation. They're going, what? You can, you're the favorite. You can win this thing. And you can win this thing for us. We've never won this before. This is a once-in-a-lifetime deal. I'm not going to do it. There's a member of the British Olympic Committee who came to him and said, listen, all of the races are in the afternoon. You can go to church in the morning. The continental Sabbath, so whatever the understanding of Sabbath in Europe, it ends at noon. And Little looks at him and says, mine runs all day. He doesn't run. He pulls out of this signature event. And decides to run the 400 instead, which he's never run before. So you've got the 100 is a sprint, the 400 is a middle distance race. Two different things. So he's not supposed to be a factor in the 400 at all. He's already run in a couple of other races and done okay, but he's tired. He gets the worst lane placement. He's on the outside. Starting gun goes off and he takes off out of the blocks. And his teammate who's watching him is going, this is not a sprint. You're not going to make it. You can't keep that pace up. But sure enough, he does all the way around. Gold medal, world record. And he says, I ran the first half as fast as I could, and I ran the second half faster because God helped me. Right before he goes to take the track, before he starts this race, the guy, Masseuse, hands him a note. And when he gets to the track, he opens it up. And and the note says, in the old book, It says, he who honors me, I will honor. And that has nothing to do with athletic performance, but everything to do with what we choose to shape our life around and what we choose to value in the way that we're living. You're going to have to fight for rest. Nobody is going to help you do it. No one. All we want, everybody wants a piece of you. And for you to say, not during this time, this is my time where I'm restored, where I'm renewed. I'm not saying where you sit in the dark on your couch. I'm saying where you're renewed and restored. There's a spiritual component to that, and there's something very individual about what feeds you. This is a time where I'm not going to be productive. I don't care how urgent it is. I'm not going to be productive. I'm not asking you to set up a list of rules that then become a burden. I'm asking you to incorporate a rhythm that's already within you. The Sabbath was made for you. I was thinking about this. Misty and I were talking about our spring. I don't know if we're teaching our kids how to rest. We're teaching them a lot of things. But I don't know if we're teaching them how to rest. She's tried. Let's not do homework on Sundays. We, they have some sports. Let's, not go to, let's just not go to those games. We'll call the coach and say, we're not doing that. It's hard to figure out how, how do you actually live out a rest. I don't know. That's why I said I can't give you a list of rules. All I can say is you're made for this. It was made for you. And we want to ask before the Lord God, what does this look like to begin to live this out? He will honor you. If you'll honor him. Let's pray. God, I pray you would show us how to honor you with our time. And it's so easy to see honoring you in the ways that we serve, in working, even in investing in people. But how do we honor you by resting? And what does that even look like? I don't know. And I for sure don't know what to tell 200 people what it looks like in their life. 
And so, God, my prayer is that you will begin to speak to men and women in this room. What's rest look like for you? And what does rest look like for your family? What does it look like for you right now to begin to develop that rhythm of rest? And it may change come June and it may change again come August and that's fine. But what does it look like right now on March 8th? God, we need revelation. We want to be led by you. You're calling us to you. Saying my yoke fits. And that's the one that we want to put on. God, I want to pray particularly for people who feel the demands of others and the idea of resting for them. They can't. Even if they're not doing anything, their insides are churning. God, I pray for peace and grace for them. And that when they make those choices to rest, I pray that they would see either the things are not as urgent as, or not as important as they thought or you're at work in the ones that are. And God, I pray for us as a people that we would be folks who rest well. I pray we would even be known in our community as people who know how to rest. There would be space in our life. There would be joy and peace in our hearts. When we work, we would be fruitful, absolutely. And when we rest, we would do that super well also. No burden on anyone, no guilt, just the freedom to come to you now. And be instructed by the one who lives life better than anyone else. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to pray for three groups of people, ministry teams, if y'all come up. One, if you're creative, we want to pray for you. That's something off of what Ann and Brian were sharing. We'd love the chance to pray for you, that God would continue to anoint you, to be creative, and allow all of that stuff that's in you to come out in life-giving ways. If you're just right now, today tired has nothing to do about your lifestyle it's just right now i'm i'm wiped out we'd love to pray for god to uh, renew you and restore you and if you would look at your life so this is third category and say there is no rhythm of rest for me you could be tired today and still have a good rhythm it's just you're kind of knocked out of joint but you may say if i look that it's not there then we want to pray that god would begin to give you revelation uh, on what that looks like and that may be something for um if you're married for you and your spouse to come forward together and allow us to pray uh, for that in your family. So you guys can stand. Uh, Bo will lead us in worship, and then he'll dismiss us after this song.